Hello and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. We've been discussing the transition from geocentrism to heliocentrism that took place roughly 500 years ago. Now, if you haven't seen the video, now's a great time to go check it out. At the heart of this topic is seeking the clearest understanding of the Bible. Thanks to Copernicus and Galileo and their friends, we started to see that scripture contains an ancient view of the world. Not just culturally, but literally an ancient view of the world, that the earth is at the center of the universe. Now that recognition led many to ask if there are other instances of the ancient science in scripture, which obviously has implications for our understanding of issues like the origins debate. We want to know if the process of the Spirit guiding the biblical authors included a correction of their understanding of the mechanisms and the physical structure of the world. And then along came this book, published just in August by Dr. 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 Dennis Lamoureux, The Bible and Ancient Science, Principles of Interpretation. After reading it, I knew it would be helpful to have him on to talk about this issue and talk we did. We went on for over an hour and a half, so I made a few edits for efficiency, but otherwise enjoy this conversation with Dr. Dennis Lamoureux. Hello and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. We are fortunate today to be joined by Dennis Lamoureux. He is a professor of science and religion at St. Joseph's College and the University of Alberta. He holds three earned doctorate degrees in general dentistry, evangelical theology, and evolutionary biology. He's also a research associate in paleontology. Lamoureux is the author of Evolutionary Creation, A Christian Approach to Evolution in 2008, I Love Jesus and I Accept Evolution in 2009, and the Zondervan publication Evolution, Scripture, and Nature Say Yes in 2017, and his latest book, The Bible and Ancient Science, Principles of Interpretation, was released just a few months ago in August. He's also published numerous papers in both science and theology. Uh, Lamoureux has debated leading anti-evolutionists, including Philip Johnson, Michael Behe, Stephen Meyer, and Kent Hovind. And with Johnson, he co-authored uh, Darwinism Defeated, the Johnson-Lamoureux debate on biological origins. He also contributed to the Zondervan book, Four Views on the Historical Adam, which he dubbed Seven Americans Against One Canadian, which I love. Lamoureux's award-winning introductory course on the relationship between science and religion is a free MOOC on the Coursera platform. It's listed under Science and Religion 101 and has attracted nearly 7,000 students since 2018. And Dennis worships at a Pentecostal church where he lives in Canada. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for this opportunity to share some thoughts, and I look forward to our conversation. Well, I'd love to hear more of your story. Can you give us some of your background? How did you end up with three doctorates? And what was the process that led you to all of your education and your, your, your beliefs about the intersection of science and faith? Tell us a little bit more about your background. Well, Dale, it wasn't like when I was getting out of high school, I had this plan of three doctorate degrees. <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, that's, that wasn't on the radar. This is sort of reactionary along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, raised in a good home went to a Catholic boys' school um, and started university in 1972 in biology. And our very first course at that time was one entirely on evolution. Mm. And by Christmas time, church was done. Mm. And wow. 
throughout my teaching, and this is what I've noticed over the years, there's a dichotomy out there. It's deeply entrenched in the culture. It's out there in the secular culture. It's there within the churches. And it's this idea, you're either on the scientific side and you embrace evolution, but you also embrace atheism. So evolution has to be atheistic. Or if you're going to be religious, you're going to be on the young earth creationist side, and that is the only position that a Christian can embrace. So here's the thing. You get this trapped in your head. You get it trapped in your head deeply. Um, You've shown some evolutionary evidence, and so church was done by by Christmas time of 1972. Um, A lot of parents are concerned about public education, and I went to a public university, a good one, the University of Alberta. And they talk about the slippery slope, and indeed there was a slippery slope. So it was just a decline. I didn't reject God in that first term, but God really played no part in my life. I suppose if I had to classify myself, I was a deist then, belief in a God, but this God had nothing to do with me, and I was running life my way. And uh, went on to dental school, and between my third and fourth year of dental school, fully went the route and became an atheist, you know, an atheistic evolutionist, and there was just no place for God. In the United States, you have a program called ROTC, where you, uh, the military pays people to go to university and then serve. There was a similar program in Canada called DOTP, Dental Officer Training Plan. Mm -hmm. And so the military paid my way through dental school. Um, And I should add, going to dental school, was there a passion? No, for me... Dental school was an opportunity to make a lot of money and have a lot of free time because yeah. the only thing I cared about was golf. That might sound <laughs> funny, but that's the only thing I cared about. It was the only thing I was passionate about. Yeah. And so, look, I came from a lower middle class home. Um, boy, dentistry was a home run pitch in terms of a lifestyle change. Sure. And the military, like I said, paid my way through. Um, one of the postings was to do United Nations peacekeeping in Nicosia, Cyprus, on the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean. And it was there that I came to the Lord. And uh, reading- your Bible when you were there? No, oh no, uh, my Bible was there. Look at, good question, I'll show it to you. Here it is. It was an old wow. King. It was an old King James version of the Bible. Yep. Um, you know, you could probably understand only about seventy percent of the words because of all the seventeenth-century <laughs> English. But here's the thing: when someone is searching, and you know, this is the mystery of God answering the prayers of my mother, who was a Christian. And at the same time, I often use the term, I bottomed out. I I did all the stuff the culture was telling me to do, you know, get a job to make a lot of money, a lot of sports, a lot of girls, a lot of drinking, a lot of dope, et cetera, et cetera. And at age 25, I saw the vanity of this. And I just sort of Hmm. said to myself, is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? I just saw it as completely empty. So in many ways, I was searching, and it's actually this Bible right here, King James Version. And, you know, it's not like someone said, read the Gospel of John. I see this as God's providence. And how often have you heard the story of adults coming to Christ because of the Gospel of John? Hmm, Here's a little subtext to the folks who are listening right now. You know, if you're searching like I was, 
Don't start in a genealogy. <laughs> Read the Gospel of John. Read John on your knees. And what the Gospel of John did for me is it just it it just it just resonated. It made so much sense. And of course, the Gospel of John really focuses on God loves us more than we could ever ever imagine. All right. So I am a born again Christian out there in Nicosia, Cyprus. And by the way, in my room. I mean. Cyprus was a posting of debauchery. People were partying all the time, yeah. but my life changed by the gospel of John. But I'm trapped in the dichotomy, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. I had heard of Dwayne Gish, the famous young earth creationist. In fact, I went to a debate. The Christian students in my class hauled me to this debate while I was still in dental school. And I should make a little parenthetic note. When it comes to those students in dental school, and I couldn't verbalize it then, but I can verbalize it now. I wanted God, and I wanted holiness. I was getting really tired of my filthy 1970s lifestyle. And I used to look at those guys, and I really admired them. They were good students. They were measured in the things they said. They were all, they all had wonderful lives in terms of ordered lives. You know, and here's me, started drinking on Thursday night. I mean, it was ridiculous. Um, and so they were a huge impact, though I couldn't verbalize it. And when I became a Christian, I actually phoned them up and thanked all of them for their witness. So part of witnessing is let's have consistent lifestyles as Christians. I assure you non-Christians are watching because I went through that. So anyway, I came back to Canada. Uh, the Lord led me into an evangelical uh, uh, church. Um, I did talk to a, a priest, and the thing we know about priests, there are good priests and bad priests, but this <laughs> one bad priest told me that, you know, to quit basing all my theology, and I won't use the word, but you can probably figure out one of the worst words on the blankety-blank Bible, which wow. kind of horrified me. Wow. Um, and then the other thing, he made a prophecy, said this religious hysteria you're experiencing will only last about a year. Well, here we are, 40 wow. years later, and the hysteria <laughs> is still going. So yeah. I came back to Canada. It was an evangelical church, so we're talking 1980. There were no evolutionary creationists, this idea of an evangelical who accepts evolution. That's, there were some, but they wouldn't say a thing in church. Oh, They'd be ostracized, and I've heard stories of, guys who've done that, and then their families pay the price. So people were quite quiet. And because I lost my faith on, on uh, the evolution issue, to run into some young, some young earth creationists who could claim that the earth could be proven to be 6,000 years old and claim that the Bible is true and that evolution is of the devil fit perfectly in my wheelhouse. Wow. Remember, Yep. Still trapped in the dichotomy. Right, right. So here's an interesting thing. I look back at that experience. What did the Lord do? The Lord met me exactly where I, where I was at. I was trapped in dichotomy. The only understanding I had was young earth creation. And so I was encouraged by them, and I'm grateful for that time. All right, finished my military commitment. What do I do for the rest of my life? And the military was fantastic. They offered me to become a surgeon, a maxillofacial surgeon, you know, break jaws and move them around, stuff like that. Yeah. They even offered to pay my entire dental salary to go to medical school. And so I got into medical school, the University of Toronto, and uh, 
See, I'm a fairly new Christian, so I'm wrestling with this idea of God's will. Is God's will follow God's moral commands, like the Ten Commands, or does God actually call you to do something? Yeah. And, you know, I was being exposed to the two positions and wrestling with it. And, uh, you know, part of my Christian journey and voyage is the Lord has sent some wonderful people in my direction to, you know, to help me in trying to make sense of this. And mm -hmm. there was uh, uh, a gal in my church who I tried to take out and she just wouldn't date me. I mean, I couldn't take her up, you know, couldn't even get to first base. Yeah. But we're friends, and, and she said to me, says, you know, Dennis, you, you do all this rationalization stuff. When you're on your knees, you'll know what God's will is. Oh, man, mm. I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> I didn't want to hear that because when I was on my knees, there was a sense of, no, don't, don't continue your military career. But really, um, and I, I had the idea of two PhDs very early. Mm. And I'm of a generation of Christians that we go get some public university PhDs then come back to attack the public universities. Yeah, and so, right, yep, yep. okay, I mean, you, you know yeah. that sort of thinking. And so I, I uh, went to medical school, medical school for three days and then I quit because I knew <laughs> I wasn't to be there. Wow. And so the following year, I went to grad school in theology at Regent College in Vancouver, BC. Uh, it was one of the, it's still a really good theological school, but in the mid eighties, they call it the golden age. J.I. Packer, Bruce Waltke, Gordon Fee, Michael Green. It was the who's who of evangelical, leading evangelicals in the world. And so I was still going there to, uh, and had the idea, you know, get myself some training in theology, then go down to the Institute of Creation Research in El Cajon and become a creation scientist. Well, Dennis, the dentist, <laughs> underlying dentist, how much ancient Near Eastern literature did I do in dental school? Yeah. What did I know about biblical interpretation? Did I do that in dental school? You know the answer. Yeah. So my tendency, like many people, and I, I'll tell you, I see it the most in my students are engineers. I mean, they're brilliant. Who can question their math? You see the math. Amazing. But we're just don't really understand what it means to read an ancient text. And it took me three years, but after three years of battling with just about every prof and getting in firefights with just about every student, I started realizing, and boy, did I have an attitude adjustment. You know, in science, we tend to think, we're the smart guys in university, and those guys in arts, artsy-fartsies are not that smart after all. <laughs> well, believe you me, I'll tell you who the knucklehead was, it was me not knowing how to read an ancient text. So it was there that I realized I can't read the Bible like a book of science. And hmm. that was the transition, a really important transition point. And the Lord was wonderful. It was slow, gentle move. So I went on to do a PhD in theology. And what I studied were the first generation of evangelicals after Darwin. And here was the shocker. They had no trouble with evolution, so long as they saw evolution as being, number one, ordained, that God ordered it, sustained, this isn't deism, this is theism, this is the God who upholds the evolutionary process, and that all of nature reflects intelligent design. The heavens declare the glory of God, as Psalm 19 says, and so too does all of biology, 
man, did we ever see that in biology today with the molecular revolution and so to uh, biological evolution. Mm -hmm. Okay, at this point, and I always love telling my students, at this point, I've got one, two, three, four, five university degrees, and I still don't have a job, but more seriously, it's back to that, that, that uh, experience of a sense of God's calling and uh, the Lord saying to me, well, look, you got a PhD, you could start teaching, but how much biology do you really know? And well, Lord, I'm a clinician, I know how to fix people's teeth, but I really can't start talking about evolution. I don't have a training in it. So, I mean, the move to do the second PhD was, I mean, it was, it was, it was if you wish, the logical move. And I always like telling the story. I defended the PhD in theology on a Monday. I flew home on a Tuesday and I started the next PhD on a Wednesday, which oh. let me suggest is not healthy. That's not the way to go. Take, <laughs> take some time off. All right. But I was still a flaming anti-evolutionist. And my goal was still, and think about, you went through a PhD in biology. Yeah. We can do our degree, but if you got an agenda to attack evolution, that no better place than to do all that reading as a PhD student. And, yeah. and I, I, I had a bit of a conspiracy mentality, so I'm scribbling in the notes, yeah. different code on here's a real good place to attack evolution. And, yeah. and, and it was sort of like the Regent College experience of, you know, three years. It takes me about three years to figure something out. And, after seeing the data day in and day out, day in and day out, um, especially the tooth evolution stuff. And that was my area. I was building right, up. Yeah, business. dental makes perfect sense. Yeah, it all makes sense. Uh, I just put my hands up in the air and I said, well, Lord, I'm grateful for my evangelical tradition, but they did teach me some things that were not correct in Sunday schools. Right. Um, the evidence for evolution, and I think, Dale, you'll probably resonate with this as being a biologist. And you've heard this, and everyone's heard this. The evidence is overwhelming. It's um, when it comes to say the stats, uh, a Pew study has identified that 98% of scientists accept biological evolution. So I accepted evolution, uh, no fanfare. It was just sort of a natural thing. It was building and building yeah. till one day. It uh, it just became so clear that uh, evolution is true. And so that, that happened in late 1994, early 95. And ever since that time, you know, I've been trying to put these two pieces together. So, mm -hmm. so when it came to my education, it was, you know, my PhD, and I should have mentioned it was at University of St. Michael's College in the University of Toronto. Great place to get a, 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 an education. It was on science and religion, but there really were some loose ends and and, and so I've sort of had to put these pieces together. So I graduated in 97, started teaching in the fall. And um, I've been at this Catholic school, St. Joe's College, the University of Alberta ever since. And, mm -hmm. and let me tell you what teaching has done for me. It is my laboratory where I bring ideas to the class. I watch them react. I, I, I keep the good ideas, the things that don't work so well, I remove and and so my students, and, you know, I always comment in publishing a book, I thank them for their patience and their time and, and for the things they've taught me. And so yeah. uh, it's a bit, like I said, it's a bit of a tortuous story. Yeah. Um, it included a conversion along the way. Yeah. And I always like saying that the Jesus I loved and served as a young earth creationist 
is the very same Jesus I love and serve today mm. as an evolutionary creationist. When it comes to the Word of God, and this is in many ways, here's the most important thing I'm going to say in this podcast. You have to the Christians, you have to be in the Word of God every day, and that's a key for me. And so, and I don't say this self-righteously, I'm a morning person, so I give the first fruits of my mind to my morning devotion. And it's not like I do this for an hour. I, you know, 10 to 15 minutes where I, I quiet my heart and I'm sipping my coffee and I'm listening to the Holy Spirit. And for those who know what I'm talking about, it's the voice of God comes out of the text and, you know, goes to your mind and your heart, you know, and the Lord encourages me, the Lord challenges me. And that is the best part of my day because um, that's why I'm an evangelical. I love the word of God and it's central to my life. Yeah. That's that's a great story. I mean, there's so many twists and turns. It's, it's, but it's. Dale, it wasn't planned. I'm sure. (laughs) I'm sure you know that. I'm sure. Yeah. But so since then, then, so do you teach both uh, in the religion and biology or are you, is your, your scholarship and your teaching more in one area than the other. Yeah, 90% of my time is really doing science and religion in the theology department. Integration, okay. Um, now, because I've got a PhD, and here's the more specific, in oral biology. So I'm, I, I, I'm a, a tooth guy in terms of tooth evolution, and in particular, tooth development as well. Uh, and you've probably heard of this term evo-devo, evolutionary developmental biology. So the paleontology department in our university, and of course, it always comes back to pals in grad school, a guy named Mike Caldwell, dear, dear friend. I mean, we're in grad school together. Um, He invites me into his laboratory, and Mike likes teeth. Well, the thing about teeth, they're very hard. They fossilized well, and so there's a lot of tooth stuff. So I get invited in, and most, you know, scientific papers are collaborations of four, five, six people. And so what they will do as paleontologists, they'll get the fossils. And it's not they don't understand biology, but they'll say, look, it, here's a tooth. You know, does this make any biological sense in terms of the evolution of it? So, for example, this past summer, I worked on iguana teeth and their evolution and, and, and their development with a couple colleagues. And so I will do some of that. Now, in terms of teaching, I've been asked to be on theses, both at the master's level and the PhD level. And so that, that's how I get my component of, component of teaching. But at the same time, it also keeps me fresh that when a thesis comes my way, I'm probably doing more preparation on it because I'm not doing this day in and day out to get up to speed. So I don't sound like a fool in the defense. Yeah. And so it's, it's really wonderful in that regard. And there's been some really good uh, moments in that, that department. I, w- I will say to you, Dale, that it, if the Lord had given me a piece of paper at the end of grad school and say, what would your, how would you like your life to be? And I'll do whatever you want. I wouldn't have put on the science part but what, but what the science part does, and I'll say thank you, Jesus, for keeping me active, because I really do enjoy it. And I tell my colleagues that, you know, the biology part is the girlfriend that got away, but I get a chance to, to revisit her. Um, and it's, it's keep me active. And I think I'm probably one of the only science religion guys who is still active in, you know, in, a, in, a, in their scientific discipline. And of course, 
being an origins debate guy, this is really relevant uh, for myself. And so I am so blessed by doing that. And I will tell you this past summer, I was doing half and half. In the morning, I was doing my hermeneutics book. This one might, what we might talk about. And then the afternoon, I was doing the iguana uh, paper with my <laughs> colleagues. And so uh, bouncing back and forth. And some people will say, you know, to be a, a theologian and, a, and an evolutionist is a contradiction. Well, no, you can actually do that. And you can actually do some of, the, of each part during the day. It all comes from the same mind. And I'll say it's the same analytical tools yeah. that we do in science as I apply in, uh, in theology. In particular, mm-hmm. the Bible is my data set. Yeah. And it's that, I mean, that's where this latest book comes from, right? So the, the book here is, if I can show this, is The Bible and Ancient Science, Perspectives yep. on Interpretation. And in many of these debates in Christian circles, it comes down to what does the Bible say, right? And and we say we hold the Bible in high regard, then we want to know what scripture has to say. And that's where you're getting into, I think, in a very helpful way, saying what does the scripture inform this um, this topic and how does our understanding of of the ancient worldview, the ancient scientific view um, influence that? So let's just start with that. And I guess before we even dig into this too much can you define for us what does ancient science mean what do you mean by by that term well look at you've you've outed me because that's really the bottom line of what i do um that is the component that really started in graduate school at region college the master's level Mm -hmm. i started seeing elements in the bible there were ancient and i i i no one ever told me that in Sunday school. So that is the process. And so I would simply say, and remember, I believe the Bible's Holy Spirit inspired, that when the Holy Spirit started inspiring these ancient Hebrews, I mean, the Holy Spirit could have done something like this. Put an ancient Hebrew in a trance and scribbled out, I created through the Big Bang and I created to biological evolution. Now, would anyone 3,500 years ago have ever understood that? And I think everyone knows the answer. So what does God do? And think of my own personal story. The Lord comes down to our level to meet us wherever we happen to be. And you know something? That's one of the great truisms that we have in evangelicalism, whereby we'll all say God meets us wherever we happen to be. In my case, I was trapped in a dichotomy like most people. So I'd say, and, and the other thing we, and let me use the technical term for this, this is the notion of accommodation. Yeah. And in many ways, um, God has to accommodate because we stop and think about God. We use the, the letters G-O-D, but can you really wrap your head around God? Yeah. So it yeah. is by necessity, God has to come down to our level. And of course, some Christians are uncomfortable with the notion of accommodation. And my return to them is, stop for a second. What is the greatest act of accommodation? And sometimes they have to pause, and then I'll tell them, it's Jesus. God came down and took on human flesh to, you know, to reveal himself to us. And when you think about this, that's that's absolutely brilliant. You know, I think about the incarnation, the taking on of human flesh. And, um, you know, I just think, you know, I ponder on things. You know, if God's going to communicate, what better way 
than to take on human flesh and become one of us. And so I'd say the Holy Spirit did the very same thing. He came down to the level of biblical authors, used their understanding of nature, which, of course, thing we know about science. Science progresses over time. Yeah. And understanding of nature, um, 350 years ago, 3,500 years ago, was an ancient understanding. And so what you have here is something that really shocked me. This is actually called the three-tier universe, whereby there are three tiers in nature. And by the way, this isn't just simply the Hebrews' understanding of the universe. This is what the Mesopotamians believe. This is what the Egyptians believe. This was the science of the day. Now, you notice there's this great big blue dome above the earth. Hmm. And you might be saying, what in the world is going on here? And this is where I'll say, stop. When we read an ancient text, we've got to be very careful not to bring our 21st century ideas and baggage and force it into the text. Yeah. Instead, we got to let the text talk to us. And we use the technical term eisegesis, and ice means into. Yeah. And I mean, everyone knows this. You don't want to read something in your ideas in someone's words. So let's not read our 21st, under, 21st century understanding of the earth being a sphere into the Bible, and let's let the Bible do the talking. And you yeah. don't have to go very far into the Bible to start seeing some of this three-tier universe stuff. Genesis 1, that very first chapter, yeah. second day of creation. And God creates, and you see the word in red, a firmament to separate the waters above from waters below. And so let's stop. Let's try thinking like an ancient person. By the way, today in Edmonton, it's a beautiful day. You look up and what do you see? A big blue dome. To think there was a sea of water up there called the waters above made perfect sense. And to think it's being held up. And that English translation, firmament, is really the best translation, where it says God created in Hebrew a rakia, or in other words, a firmament, to separate the waters above from waters below. So in other words, from, and I'm going to use a technical term here, from an ancient phenomenological, phenomai in Greek means to appear, from an ancient phenomenological perspective, from the perspective of the naked eye with no telescopes, to look up and think there was a big blue dome and a sea up there made perfect sense. And to think it was like an inverted bowl also made sense because yeah. think of the horizon. They look around themselves and they see a circle. So to think that the firmament was clear and it was like an inverted bowl holding up a sea of water made perfect sense and it was the best science of the day. Let's move on to the fourth day of creation. And God does what? He places the sun, moon, and stars where? In the firmament, yeah. in the rakia. And isn't that what it looks like from? an ancient phenomenological perspective. And we look up, sure as heck, the sun, moon, and stars are moving along the way, along the firmament next to the firmament. So this was the best science of the day. Okay, let's zoom forward to the Apostle Paul, who I really love. And I always like saying Creation Day 2 and Philippians 2 in the New Testament. Philippians 2 has this wonderful hymn called the Kenotic Hymn. And kanao in Greek means to pour out. This is a hymn that talks about the greatest act in my mind in the New Testament, whereby God pours himself out and takes on the flesh of a person in Jesus. And if you go to Philippians 2, verse 10, it says, and everyone knows the verse because we sing it in our praise and worship music. 
in my Pentecostal church. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord where? In heaven? On earth? Now, of course, your English translations will say, and under the earth, but the actual Greek is katakathonios, which means and in the underworld. And sometimes translations will smooth things out because this could be a stumbling block for people. And to right. say under the earth is not such a bad idea, but yep. to be more accurately, it's the underworld. And there is your three-tier universe. So what's going on here? This was the science of the day in Paul's day. And Paul is using that three-tier universe, if you wish, as a vessel yep. to deliver this amazing spiritual truth that Jesus Christ is Lord of the entire world as Paul understood it. So another great example of the Holy Spirit accommodating down to the level of an ancient person using their science as a vessel to get across a wonderful inerrant, and I'll use the word inerrant, an absolutely true spiritual truth that Jesus Christ is Lord of the creation. And here's what we can do as modern individuals is take this spiritual truth. Take a look at our modern understanding of the universe to say God created the world through the Big Bang and through an evolutionary process, and Jesus is Lord of all, is Lord of all these amazing yeah. processes, these natural processes like cosmological evolution, geological evolution, and biological evolution, and Jesus is Lord of all of them. And let's say the science you and I embrace today gets turned over. And those are always a possibility. I don't think that'll happen. You know, for example, I don't think we'll go back to a flat earth right. and a three-tier universe. Right. I think we'll, we're here to stay on a, on a sphere. But let's say it got turned over. We can take that very same spiritual truth, Jesus Christ is Lord of the creation, and then put in whatever is the next scientific theory. Yep. That makes sense, Dale? It, it makes perfect sense. And I mean, I, 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 I'm comfortable with that, but I think me... 20 years ago would not have been because so much evangelical Christianity is rooted in this idea of inerrancy and inerrancy is a, a kind of delicate term, but yep. I, you know, I think you and I both came from the idea that it meant that every single word and every phrase and every idea in scripture is without error, without, it's just flawless. Right. And so, you know, I, my students, Look at when I went to Rancho College, you, yeah. you say 20 years ago, I would say 40 years ago. That's only because I'm a bit older, I suspect. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably a lot older. I'm a senior citizen now. Um, uh, you, you talk to some of the older guys at Regent College, yeah. and you say the name Lamaru, and they all start laughing. You know, they go, Oh, yeah, we remember him rock throwing, <laughs> screaming, and hollering, and, you know, declaring jihad on us. As a young earth creationist, and yeah. and you know, I I I will always be an evangelical. I'll always value my education. I will also cut some slack for the tradition because yeah. they look. Let's not change theology for any new scientific whim. Before we go there, let, let's take some time and let's think about it. Yeah. So I value the tradition, and but at the same time. The tradition is slowly changing, yeah. and um, like I said, I'll cut them some slack. There was no biologos, you know, an, an evangelical organization holding up yeah. uh, evolution when I was at Regent College in the mid '80s. That, that that's not even on the radar. In fact, I look back at that education, 
And the most I got out of region, they weren't filling in many of the blanks for me. And that's not to diss the education. That's where evangelicalism was in the mid eighties. Yeah. I basically got an idea. The earth is old, but they were still kind of quiet in evolution and they weren't going there. So um, is look at this is just church history in action. And one thing it sort of says something about the evangelical world compared to say Catholicism. Catholicism came to terms sooner with evolution. Why? Well, listen to the schools, you know, uh, mm. Notre Dame, one of the greatest universities in the entire world. So the theology department is just next to, you know, the science department mm -hmm. here at my university. My college, the theological school, is only a couple blocks for some of the from from some of the greatest scientists in the world. Yeah. So the Catholics got informed, and we, unfortunately, as evangelicals, and this is, I would say, the mistake of the of the early twentieth century. We used to be in the universities. Think of Princeton and yeah, think right, of the yeah. Princetonians. Those were all. I mean, that's what I studied my PhD on. These guys were amazing. Mm -hmm. We bailed out on the academy to go and create Bible schools. And the problem with creating Bible schools is you can't bring your science departments because they're way too expensive. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, we ended up having an education, yes, on the scripture, the book of the book of scripture, but of the book of nature, we we just didn't go there. And so instead of being two books people upholding both the scripture and nature, we became one eye sighted right. in our theology. Now, this is changing. And your school is an example and the fact they've hired you. Um, and I know this is happening in evangelical schools across America. You know, think of the uh, CCCU, the Coalition right. of Christian Colleges yep. and Universities. And I've spoken in many of these schools. Yep. And I'm invited by the biologists. In many ways, I'm asked by the biologists to say some things they can't say because <laughs> they're still kind of looking over their shoulders. But these schools want to have uh, real science departments because they want to have students go to med school and they have no choice but to hire guys with real PhDs in biology. And you know what happens if you do a real yep. PhD in biology. Yeah. They're all evolutionists, but they're also cautious. And that's why I sort of cut out a bit of a cottage industry, right. say a lot of things that they can't say. And, you know, I, I understand that when I visit, I always say, I'm here to serve you. What do you want me to say? And yeah. invariably they always say, say it all. <laughs> they can't <laughs> fire you and they won't fire someone for a visiting lecture yeah, for right. a couple of days. So yeah. it's a little, you know, modus vivendi we sort of created. Yep. So, so, I mean, I, this is all great. So you're, you're saying we can, we can retain our, our high view of scripture and somehow be it comfortable with the idea that there are maybe inaccuracies when that scripture is talking about the natural world. Is, is that, what does that mean then for? I'm saying uh, that absolutely and yeah. watch what I'm about to say because you'll be shocked with what I'm about to say. Yeah. I think my theology is more biblical than most of these individuals who are anti-evolutionists who will claim I have a low view of scripture. I do not have a low view of scripture. I have an exceedingly high view of scripture. Yeah. Here's the difference. I've just dug a little deeper and I've found some of, and well, the thing is once you start seeing it, the ancient science, it explodes everywhere. Yeah. So my little, um, my little um, uh, aphorism is, 
I shall submit to the very words in the word of God, no matter what. And we've just given you the example. When I started realizing there was a firmament there, and of course, once you do that first Hebrew course, you're going to, you can be, after one Hebrew course, you can actually read Genesis 1. Yeah. Uh, and I was seeing this. And, and, and Dale, there was a moment in, in all the graduate school, there was, there was that Kodak moment that when this all came, I mean, it was building and building, and then it just came thundering in my head. And it was the end of my third year of Regent. I had my thesis in. I had only one paper left for two master's degrees. Mm -hmm. And it was this paper that really identified there is an ancient science. I can see it in Hebrew. This is non-negotiable. There is no debate on this. And at this point, I was burning mad, furious, thinking I walked out of medical school to end up becoming a creation scientist. And this is all collapsed on the on, on the launching pad yeah. i mean i've ruined my life by doing this i'm such a complete idiot and like i said there's about 20 seconds 30 seconds of pure darkness yeah. i thought to heck with this i was actually sitting in the med i used to study in the med library i was going to leave all my stuff in my briefcase right there in my carol i wasn't going back to grab my clothes I was just going right to the parking lot, get in my car and go back 750 hmm. miles back to Edmonton and reinvent my life. Yeah. I was just done. Yeah. Then at the same time, and here's this great story about intelligent design and nature. And by the way, I define the term traditionally, not like the guys at the Discovery Institute sure. muddle this up with, the, with anti-evolutionism. When I talk about intelligent design, I talk about the beauty, complexity, and uh, beauty, complexity, and functionality in nature pointing to a designer. So I'm sitting in the library, and in Vancouver in the spring, there's nothing prettier. The snow-capped mountains, the green of the forest, the blue of the sea. And it was just sort of like the Holy Spirit coming around me. Now, you see, I've had this experience of the Holy Spirit in the Scripture. I have that sensitivity. And there was the Holy Spirit saying to me, Dennis, your job was to open the library at 8 and close it at 10 at night. My job, talking about the Holy Spirit, was to teach you what's going on in the Word of God. And so if there is indeed an ancient science in there, I will acknowledge it. I, will, I, I already had arguments on how to make sense of it that the Holy Spirit accommodated. And so at that point, that was the shift away from using the Bible as a book of science and um, moving forward. And I've never had a moment like that since, but it was a great teaching moment whereby the Holy Spirit says, and, and you know, I've had moments where you don't know what ends up, but I have this experience going, all right, if I don't understand something, I'm probably missing some pieces. The Lord might send someone in my direction. The Lord might, and I'll tell you, a number of times I've run into books opening it right at the right pages. It's haunting as if, you know, the Holy Spirit saying, you got to read this. And uh, so my faith, my faith, my faith had that little wobble for about 20, 25 seconds, yeah. but then just locked and loaded and realized, all right, if this is what you've done in the word of God, you've accommodated, so be it. And if it, indeed yeah. there's this ancient science, I cannot go to my Bible and try to line it up right. with science. And of course, the technical term, concordism. With, yeah. Most evangelical Christians are concordists. Most evangelical Christians are not aware of concordism. And concordism doesn't work. That isn't a failing of the word of God. 
a feature of the Word of God is you can't align Scripture with nature. And your best example is the three-tier universe in the firmament. Yeah, yeah. Define concordance for, for, I mean, for those that aren't familiar with that term. Okay, when it comes to the word concordism, think of the word to accord. It's the idea that scripture aligns with nature, more specifically, statements about nature in the Bible, statements about the physical world align with what science finds. Now, let's make it very clear. To assume that there is an alignment between scripture and science is perfectly reasonable. It makes perfect sense. For example, God inspired the Bible. Yep, I believe that. God um, created the world. Uh, yep, I believe that. So to think that that the scripture and nature should align in some sort of way is perfectly reasonable. So so people who embrace that, and that's what we're taught in our Sunday schools, it, it makes perfect sense. But here's the but. Here is the shock of my life. Here is first phase of my graduate school. And like I said, it took me three years to wrap this around my head. The Bible has an ancient understanding of nature and scripture and the Holy Spirit accommodated and did this. And right. let's stop for a second. Yeah. Why would he do this? They wouldn't have understood if the Holy Spirit put evolution or cosmological evolution. They wouldn't have got that. Right. Now my pal, and he is a pal, he's a dear friend, John Walton mm. got this little aphorism. The Bible was written for you. It's written for all of us, right. all through time. So the Bible is written for you, but here's the kicker. It's not written to you, a 21st century audience. It yeah. was written to an audience that was living 3,500 years ago. Hmm. So, and John, by the way, is one of the first to say, great, and you'll find it in his books, that there isn't one example of science, modern science being placed in the Bible ahead of time, instead, all the statements about nature in the Bible, and he uses the term old world science, which is the same as ancient, ancient science. And this is where John and I are completely 110% on board. Yep. Um, so now it's interesting, though, that you said, I mean, you, you had that moment of just like, ah, oh, frustration that the Bible wasn't working out the way you anticipated. But, you know, those that, that are real advocates for concordus view and a young earth view, or even sort of the old earth version of concordism, they, they say, if we lose this idea of a, of a perfection, of a perfect scripture, that we're going to lose everything else with it, not only, you know, the, the views of nature, but we're going to lose the incarnation and we're going to, you know, we're going to get that liberal theology that grew up after the enlightenment where they just tried to get rid of all the miracles. And so how, how do you, I mean, you're at peace with this, I'm at peace with this, but how do we talk to people so that they're comfortable with the idea that scripture has got ancient ideas in it, but that doesn't mean that all the ideas in it are, are old and outdated and, and can be, you know, reinterpreted in our yeah. modern view. Well, this is, that's a, that's a terrific question. <laughs> um, the most important thing is to get people thinking about the word of God. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say this in quotation marks. The problem with the Bible, it's all between two covers mm -hmm. and anything between two covers. And of course, yes, God is the inspirer. But we have to remember, this is a book that's been written over 1,500 years by at least 50 different authors. Yeah. And so as I look to my students, I say, do you remember in first year, 
English, where you had that anthology, that big, thick anthology with all sorts of different types of literature from different types of authors. So what you have to do when it comes to the scripture, and you know, you've alluded to this, or more than alluded to it, every time we deal with a passage, we have to ask the question, what is the literary genre? What type of literature is it? Now, of course, there's a tendency, and I was one of the worst in doing this, is we have a one-size-fits-all understanding of Scripture. Yeah. And um, so when someone tries to compare, say, the Gospels to, say, Genesis 1 to 11, the accounts of origins, I'll say, you guys, you're making a terrible, terrible mistake. Because when it comes to the Gospels, it's a different genre. And I like Richard Bachman's uh, category. This is eyewitness testimony. This is the testimony of real people who saw real things, and that's how it comes off. Mm. When it comes to the opening chapters of the Bible, it's a different type of literature. And so you're going to use different literary genres. You know, I'll give you an example. Even within the New Testament, and I love using this verse, you know, in, in Matthew uh, 5, where Jesus says, if you lust after a woman, pluck your eye out. I mean, I've never gone to a church and see, seen a whole bunch of guys with plucked out eyes. Now, are you telling me, you know, you've never lusted after a woman? Yeah. Obviously, he's... He's, uh, yeah, he's, he's using hyperbole yeah. or exaggeration to get a point out. So it, it's, it's back to literary genre, which is so very important. And, you know, um, look, I'll give you another example about Jesus. Um, Jesus used parables. Everyone knows that. One third of Jesus's parables or one third of Jesus's teaching were parables. Hmm. And what are parables? They're stories. Right, yeah. They didn't happen. It's yeah. a story that Jesus made up. Yeah. And I always like saying this, and it's probably the first time some people will hear this in a moment. Um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, absolutely brilliant. How brilliant is it? There are laws in the Western world that are built off this. Yeah. <laughs> didn't happen. There yeah. never was a guy who got beat up by a bunch of robbers. There isn't a Levite who walked by. There wasn't a priest who walked by. And there yeah. wasn't a Samaritan who put him on his donkey and, you know, took care of him. Yeah. It's a story. So right out of there, you can say, if a third of Jesus' teachings are made up stories, then we have to look at the genre, possibly that there's stories in other places of Scripture to get across. And what's the brilliance of a, a parable? to get across those spiritual truths. Yeah, right, Who's your yeah. neighbor? And of course, the thing with Jesus picking a Samaritan, you know, and he's talking to Jews, boy, this would have really been edgy. <laughs> Go ahead and say, and it's a Samaritan who did the right thing. You know, Jesus did have some edge. Yeah. So watch what I'm going to do here. I'm going to zoom you all the way back to an account you know very, very well. Let's say Genesis 2 and 3 were not part of our Bibles. Let's, let's mm -hmm. try that thought experiment. And let's say you found a piece of literature with the following features. Number one, a talking snake. Mm. Bells should be going off in your head right yeah. now. Yep. Number two, a mystical tree that imparts knowledge of good and evil. Mm. Number three, another mystical tree that imparts eternal life. Yeah. Number four, cherubim. 
Now, a lot of people think of cherubim, these chubby little angels. No, they're not. They're composite creatures, just like the Sphinx. Mm -hmm. A human head, a body of a lion, wings like an eagle. A spinning sword at the end of the account that's flaming. Yeah. A guy whose name is Adam, and it's a play on the word Adama, which is Earth. Earth it's yeah. a guy named Earthling, a woman named Hawa, built off the verb to be, a mother of life. Put all these features together, and let's say you found this ancient text. Would you run to a history department, a university, say, I found a new historical text that we need to add to human history? Yeah. Now, I know no one would do that, but that are some of the features in the Word of God. Right. Yeah. And to use my argument back to Jesus, that Jesus uses stories um, to get across spiritual truths, could it be that the Holy Spirit is inspiring the author to use a story to get across amazing spiritual truths. And in my book, Genesis 2 and 3 are some of the most amazing chapters in the Bible. Right. God gives us everything. We don't listen to him. But here's the really good part. This is the best part. The Lord God goes up to the woman and says, what's up? And what does she do? It's the snake that made me do it. <laughs> okay? yeah. The blame game. But when it gets to the guy, and it's the guy who really gets a beating here, the Lord goes up to Adam and says, what do you do? What does he do? He blames the woman, <laughs> and then he says, it's the woman that you put here with me. He's blaming God. This is the blame game. This is the classic example of rationalization. You don't, mean, you don't take account for your sin. You blame someone else. Yeah. And then not only that, you blame God. Yeah. I got one word to describe that. How pathetic. <laughs> isn't that who we are? Right. Don't we do pathetic things just like that? That's why Genesis 2 and 3 is absolutely spectacular. All right. Back on the word of genre here. Right, right. So I think there's this story thing going on. I like to call this parable-like. It's not a parable. There's something else going on. And Dale, I only started, it only hit, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, on the last three, four years. What else is going on in Genesis 2 and 3? It is a creation account, no doubt about it. It uses the science of the day, which is, and I'm going to use the technical term, de novo creation. De novo in Latin means brand new. And if you speak French, it's la création, it's creation that is brand new. C'est la création de nouveau. So de novo creation is the ancient science. And de novo creation simply means this. Everything gets created quickly and completely. So if you go to Genesis 2, Adam is created quickly from the dust of the ground. It's not taking millions of years. Eve, quickly from his side. The animals and the birds, quickly from the dust of the ground. So what we're seeing here is a genre that many of us don't experience today mm. in that it is their scientific account. It is an ancient science, but it's overlaid with a story. And that's what they did in the ancient world. And for years and years, I didn't see it. And I'll tell you why is because of every scientific publication I've ever been part of, and I know every scientific publication you've been part of, you have never brought in a parable-like story yeah. next, to your, next to your science, right? 
That's because when we do science, we only do science and we don't have this literary genre of science plus our religious or philosophical beliefs. Right, but right. in the ancient world, that's exactly what they did. So it is, that is what an ancient creation account is, those two components, the science of the day plus, and I'll also say when the Holy Spirit was inspiring these writers, he was allowing them, he was accommodating by using their ancient science, but at the same time was bringing those amazing spiritual truths like we try to justify our sin by playing the game. Playing game. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, you know, look, I love scripture, but every time I read that in my morning devotions, I go, how many times have I been this pathetic and done the very same thing? <laughs> and the other thing is, all right, I'm going to do a shout out to CNN. I mean, I can hardly watch CNN anymore. I mean, yeah. CNN is, but, but what is CNN? It's blame game, blame game, blame, always blaming. Yeah. Does CNN ever say anything positive? No, it's always blaming. Yeah. And people blaming one another. So yeah, that ancient nature is political as I'm going to get today. in this podcast in light of what's going on in your country right, right. now. <laughs> we don't understand it either. It's a mess. But, but so, it is the blame um, game, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's, about, it's about right. You know, wh whoever gets elected, it's going to be the end of the world regardless. So yep. you know, we can, what a mess. Um, Read Genesis 2 and 3, folks. Right. It all makes sense. It's all coming back together. So yeah. now, I, um, do, you, do you find church leaders, do you find pastors and Sunday school, you know, administrators that, that want to teach this stuff? Because I think it's so important. I know so many people that share our story of like, I never heard this when I was young and I had to figure it out on my own. Why are we so, I shouldn't say we, but why are so, so much of the Christian church uncomfortable with talking about these things with, with younger people? Oh, you're, you're rustling me up with that question. <laughs> you remember when I said very, very early in this interview that um, I was denied the opportunity to teach yeah. in a pan my Pentecostal and, and mm -hmm. Baptist colleges, and yep. a no is sometimes uh, God's answer. Yep. If I would have gone to either of those schools, I would not be where I am today because I'd always be looking over my shoulder. I wouldn't have this amazing intellectual freedom to explore these things. Yeah. And so let me give you the example of the Catholic church. It goes Pope magisterium, which is some of the best academics in the world. I mean, that teaching office is spectacular. I'm sure. And then all the people now in our evangelical tradition, you know how it works. The constituency, the pastors, and then whoever who works for them. Yeah, right. Yeah. And if the constituency, and remember the constituency is, God bless them for the money they put into churches. Mm. They are the power base. It's, a, you know, the, the constituency oh, yeah, and the so board. And as a result, guys are looking over their shoulder. And I've been told many times they can't go where I'm going. Mm -hmm. And I say... I know, and what you say to me, I'll go to my grave with it to protect you. And so how do we improve things? Um, it's going to be difficult. Yeah. And, you know, Thomas S. Kuhn wrote this amazing book, History of Science, uh, The um, Copernican Revolution, the structure of the Copernican Revolution. 
And uh, he, he says, how do ideas change within culture and the academy? And I always remember, it's so funny, one death at a time. In other words, my generation has to die off. Your generation, the younger people, have to take over, and they will take over. Yeah. And the one thing I am finding with young people, and I really attribute this to the, the, the Holy Spirit. Now, we also know amongst young people, they're leaving the church in record numbers at record speed. But I also tell you with many young people, they may not know the word evolutionary creation, but they sort of hold it in a hazy way that God can be behind uh, the evolutionary process and the purpose of the Bible for spiritual truths. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll sort of come up and put that together on their own. And um, let me give you an example of a, a speaking gig I did uh, with Young Life. I mean, we have Young Life in Canada like you do. And they asked me what I speak at the Western Canadian conference to both the young people and the leaders. And I says, no, I, I won't speak to the young people. They're underaged and their parents would be furious for some of the things um, they, I would send them home with. But when it comes to your leaders, they're all adults. Most of them have college degrees. And so let's have a, let's have a conversation. And when it comes to my teaching technique is I don't just teach my views. I teach, you know, the five basic views, three of which are evangelical. I give a great presentation on young earth creation that no young earth creationists have been upset with. Progressive creation, which is Hugh Ross's position, evolutionary creation, then deistic evolution, and finally, atheistic evolution. And another technique I use is after I do the presentation, I put them in little groups and I survey them to find out what their views are. Here are the views in 2017, February, of the leaders of Young Life in Western Canada. Young Earth Creation. You ready for this? Drum roll. Yeah. yeah. 9%. Wow. Wow. Progressive Creation. Drum roll. Yeah. 6%. Wow. Evolutionary Creation. Yeah. 85%. Wow. That's remarkable. Yeah. Listen, it was just a 40-minute presentation. It was across the board. I did have a little piece in which talked about my personal wrestling with this and coming to Christ, but it was very, very limited. And I'm very proud to say there were no deists and there were no atheists amongst them. <laughs> That's a good thing. Yeah. Well, I will say uh, the head of Canadian Young Life was there, who was older than me, and he did not look happy. But look at all I did was present the views. And as we surveyed them, comments were made like, and I often hear this ephemeral language where they say, I've always felt this middle position. I just didn't know what to call it. And really, this is what teaching is for kids is to show them the categories. Yeah. And the moment they got a new category and they understand why we use the word evolutionary creation instead of theistic evolution. I mean, the reason I use it is theistic evolution. Theist comes from the word uh, theos in yeah. Greek, which means God. And what's it doing? Theistic evolution is putting God as an adjective to the more important term evolution. And that inversion of order is utterly unacceptable for me. So I prefer using evolutionary creation because the substantive or the noun creation is more important. I am first and foremost a creationist. I believe in a creator 
And I just happen to believe the Lord created through an evolutionary process. And I leave evolutionary as an adjective. And when it comes to evolutionary creation, which has really taken off in the last 10 or 15 years, um, it's distinctly evangelical, born-again people who use this term, like the gang at uh, BioLogos, who are just absolutely wonderful evangelicals who completely embrace um, biological evolution. Yep. Well, related to that, well, I'll just ask you one last question. We'll let you go here. So, you know, there are people perhaps wrestling with this issue themselves or, or who are Sunday school teachers or parents or you know, have relationships with people that are wrestling with this, what, what advice would you give for someone that's maybe raised like we were, this idea that, that scripture is inerrant comprehensively and every single thing in it is, is true to um, a modern eye as it would be to an ancient one? How do you I, I would simply say, on that pathway? yeah, I'd simply say, look at part of the, the Christian voyage is there are moments where it's going to be challenging. And I think anyone who's grown spiritually goes usually through a period where it can be kind of confusing and stuff like that. Yeah. Let me, let me say one thing. And I think um, the, the culture, the Christian culture will affirm this. The evangelical church is slowly coming to terms with biological evolution. And here's proof. Biologos, who was founded by, and I can't call him Francis Collins. I only can call him Dr. Collins. I'm in awe of this man. Yeah. I sent him a copy of my book, and I said, you are my hero. And when we think about who Francis Collins is, he ran the Genome Project. He is now running NIH. Yeah. I mean, this, Fred, Dr. Collins is not just a world-class scientist. He's a scientist at the level of the history of science. When books on the history of science are going to be written, there's going to be a good part talking about the greatness of his science. Mm -hmm. But even greater is the man's evangelical faith. I've had the privilege of meeting him many times. I have never met such a humble guy with a CV that's way longer than my arm. I mean, there's a guy who should be pompous. Yeah. He had all the right. He's not like that because wow. he has an amazing faith. He came to Christ through C.S. Lewis. That should say a ton. And so I would say to people who are wrestling on this stuff to say, look, there is no rush to solve all this, these details. I would say to you, keep clinging to your Bible, keep clinging to Jesus. That is the essence of faith. Make yeah. sure you keep reading the text, but start looking at different people who have good faith and have coming to terms with science. BioLogos has so much material online that you can go there. Um, my stuff I put for free on my webpage. Uh, in fact, I've had the privilege of my course, Science and Religion is on Coursera. It's totally free. Go there, yep. uh, take the course, listen to, to different people. Um, here is, is it the shameful or shameless plug? What this book is, <laughs> is all my basic <laughs> principles, all my basic principles in my course to that, you know, those are principles that help me sort of realize the Bible is definitely the word of God, 
Um, uh, but the Holy Spirit allowed an ancient science in there. And by the way, the ancient science is not so dominant. I mean, the, the Bible is about spiritual truths. Right, right, yeah. I think where history really starts is with Abraham. And as we go from Abraham, the historicity, and if you go to biblical archaeology, you'll see there are a lot of events in Scripture that align with Scripture when it comes to the, the, the historical texts in, in Egypt and in Mesopotamia. And in particular, when it comes to the New Testament, and that's our focus as Christians, there really was someone named Jesus in space and time. There was a Pontius Pilate. There was a King Herod. And as I read those New Testament gospel accounts, like it's the Richard Bachman category, I see this as eyewitness testimony. So what am I saying? Start developing your principles of biblical interpretation. There are a lot of great places where you can do that. And I'd certainly say consider doing a biblical interpretation course in one of your local um, evangelical colleges would be a great place to do that. Most yep. uh, yeah. don't stop. Keep on progressing. And uh, the one thing I've done with this book, and you'll sort of notice on the back, I've got a an email address that, you know, once a month, anyone who wants to get on Zoom with me and talk about it and ask, do Q&A and make it much more interactive, I'm, I'm happy to do stuff like that. Uh, and I'll do the same yeah. thing with my science and religion course on Coursera, you know, the one-on-one course. And I mean, we've had some really great discussions. You know, if there's a bit of a silver lining on this, on this pandemic thing, is everyone has become pretty comfortable with Zoom. And yeah, that's true. Think about this. I mean, as much as I enjoy Minnesota and St. Paul, I mean, I've been there. Times. <laughs> the amount of time it takes us to do this conversation is how much time it takes me to drive to the airport. Right. And uh, we've saved a ton of time. And frankly. I think this is more fruitful doing it this way because we've got a record of it and we can share it with, uh, with people out there. Well, well, thank you so much, Dennis. It's been really interesting and valuable. Uh, I'll just recommend it. again, you know, this book has uh, really helped to clarify for me the, the idea that we don't need to go to scripture in search of scientific insights and that we can then just be at peace with the theology that we get out of it. And so, um, How about if I share two stories yeah, on sure. that yeah. very thing and what makes me, you know, what more can I say? What a privilege to teach these young people. I had this young woman in my class. She was only in second year and she was my top gun. I mean... We only have an A plus, but if I could give her an A triple plus, I'd give her an A triple plus. She actually got, of all places, in medical school at the University of Toronto, Mm -hmm. only after her second year, the place where I walked out of. And as she walks out of my class, and I always get this mixed up, um, she says, you've taught me one thing. And, you know, I'm thinking, what, do I have that right? What a loser is it this way? Anyway, (laughs) and I'm thinking to myself, I'm only taught this kid one thing, and what sort of loser am I? And then she said to me, I am free of all this craziness that I was taught. And I thought, wow, that is a massive move. She's free of the concordism. She was wrestling with the stuff she's taught on Sunday school and then seeing in the biology class. And she's free. And what more can I ask? And then the next story of a young woman, um, what I do is I try to present basically the entire course in the first three weeks. And um, then recycle the ideas for the rest of the term. This young woman came up after class and she was flushed, red face, red neck. 
and she says, uh, you have no idea what this course is doing to me. And I'm going, oh, oh, I'm a little worried. And she says to me, I no longer feel guilty going to biology class. <laughs> I think you know, look, you're laughing. You know exactly what she's saying. That she was told, look, she wants to go to med school. You've got to go through biology. You've got to learn all this evolution, you know, this crazy, ridiculous theory of evolution. Uh, learn it so you put it on the exam, but don't believe it because it's complete nonsense. Don't hurt your marks. Yeah. And so that's the way she was doing biology school as a pre-med student. I mean, yeah. what can I say? What a dysfunctional way of doing education. And then she says to me, she says, you and this is just after three weeks of introducing the basic idea, like yeah. idea like evolutionary creation. She says, you have no idea how exciting it is to go to biology class and learn about evolution and how it makes so much sense that biology is all unified by this central paradigm called evolution. And of course, you're all thinking, man, oh man, you know, I get paid to do what I do, but you know, to have moments like that, there's no paycheck yeah. that comes close yeah. to 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 build up a young person who, you know, is struggling and uh, praise Jesus. What a, what a, what a blessed life I exist. So thought we'd end with a couple stories like that. I think the students are, I teach them, but they teach me as much, if not more. And uh, they bless me to no end uh, by sharing their stories with me. And so if some students out there are wrestling with this, you know, seeing one thing on Sunday morning and, something else in biology class believe you me there's there's a way there's a middle ground where you can embrace your faith and love jesus and at the same time yep. accept evolution which I, I think that's good news. both our stories right but that's good news right yep yep we appreciate your your uh your eager uh desire to share that that message with us through through your writings through our conversation today thank you so much for joining us uh we'll, we'll have you back again when the next book comes out all right. Can we, can I close in prayer? Yeah, please do. That's a wonderful idea. All right. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Dale has been a, just a wonderful host. He's asked brilliant questions and um, I thank you for him and his ministry and uh, ask you to continue to, to be with him and, and with his students that he can build up and encourage his students. And father, for the many things we talked about here today, may the things that are worthwhile and worth remembering, that you see fit to glorify you. May those things be remembered by the people who listen. And for the things that are not worth remembering, set them aside. And the most important thing, Father, may we glorify your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and that it helps you better understand the intersection between scripture and science and ancient science. Disciple Science is a crowdfunded nonprofit. We're based in St. Paul, Minnesota. Our videos and our podcast and everything we do are designed to help you see how integrating science with Christian faith can inspire a fuller knowledge of God. We're dependent on your gifts to keep this project going. You can support this ministry by making a donation at our website at disciplescience.com.